For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You're listening to What Do You Know on News Talk KGVO, AM 1290 and 98.3 FM. Arnie Sherman, good Sunday morning. Good morning, Scott. We had a great guest today. We've had him on before, Jim Harmon. He has a book out now, The Sneakiness Man That Ever Was. Great gems of local history making Missoula history back uh, 100 years or more, making it fun and interesting. And I, I've read the book. You've read the book. Terrific stories. And I'm looking forward to asking him about it, how he put this all together and, uh, and you know, what, what was his thinking in, in terms of uh, – of uh, writing this uh, book and, and uh, getting these uh, colorful people into print. Yep, we'll be back with our guest, Jim Harmon, back after this. Arnie Sherman, we are back with our guest, Jim Harmon. Jim, it's good to have you back on the show. How have you been? I have been uh, quite good, quite busy since our last uh, meeting. Unexpected things have happened, <laughs> including a book. I hadn't really intended that, but uh, it's been a pretty exciting time. In two years since you've been on the show, and uh, yeah. that wasn't on the horizon two years ago. So what was the genesis of this book? By the way, for our listeners, I've read the book, it's Headline Stories of Montana's Early Days and the uh, – the main title is the sneaky sneakiest man that ever was, yeah. which is the, which is the first story in the book. Yeah, uh, well, the last two years have been very interesting. I've been writing the uh, various columns uh, on a weekly basis for the Missoula Current, an online newspaper in Missoula, uh, for well, it's between five and six years now, and uh, developed enough of a readership that uh, folks kept hounding me, why don't you write a book? Why don't you put some of these uh, old gems into a book or some additional material? And I kind of let it pass. But in the last year, I got to chatting with Dale Burke at uh, Stonydale Press in Stevensville. And we've had some delightful conversations over the last year and a half or so. And it finally came down to uh, my wife and I deciding whether we really wanted to uh, get into the book uh, publishing thing. And we decided, why not? Um, so I got together with Dale. We put together a deal to publish a book. Um, and it uh, took me a long time to figure out how to write a book. I write, but I know nothing about how you put a book together. It was one of the most complex things I've ever run into. Now that I've done it, I've got it. So another one in the future will be a piece of cake by comparison. But it all had to be done in order, uh, all sorts of things that I don't normally do. I just say, here, here's a pile of manuscripts, kind of put it together. So uh, we worked on this for better part of a year, and the saddest part of it was Dale Burke, wonderful fellow, uh, died of a heart attack um, the day after he and I had chatted in the afternoon about the final additions and corrections for this book. Uh, Jim, and that could be the first story in your next book. It it could well be. I I attended his funeral. Uh, hundreds of people turned out. Uh, he was so well known in the Bitterroot and beyond, um, fishing, hunting, outdoors activities, environmental concerns, saving uh, the land. Uh, Dale was just uh, such a name and uh, such a presence. Uh, that delayed things, of course, uh, because his uh, his four daughters didn't uh, know too much about the book publishing uh, business. Rachel, one of the daughters, uh, was uh, 
trying to learn to take over the business. In any event, as she stepped in, and it took about a month, but we uh, finally managed to make sure that the printer had all the final changes. Then the publishing took place, and and the books were out around November 1st. Uh, again, readers... Uh, 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 encouraging me to do so, I guess, is the first part uh, of the, the question. Um, I'm happy uh, my wife and I decided to do it. Uh, the title of the book uh, is a result, really, of some of the grandchildren uh, sitting on the deck um, uh, toward mid to late summer. And I had uh, a list of the table of contents of this proposed book. So I handed it around to uh, their parents and, and to the grandkids. And I asked, well, which one of the stories, you know, just from the name of it, uh, grabs your attention? It was unanimous, the sneakiness man that ever was. <laughs> and, and that's the story of one of the, the most, uh, the well-known characters in Missoula history, Coyote Bill, uh, um, a man whose real name was Bees Cove, and uh, Colonel Bees Cove, as he preferred to be called, because after all, he claimed to be a scout uh, for Custer. No one really knew if that was true, but that's what he claimed. And didn't he and live as a, as a recluse sort of up the rattlesnake? He did. His place was up the rattlesnake a considerable distance out of Missoula. He had a piece of land there, but the trouble was he... He sort of claimed all the land in the vicinity, <laughs> and the roads, the bridges, whatever existed back then in the late 1800s. By golly, Coyote Bill owned all that. So if you wanted to come up, uh, come up and cut firewood, go fishing, do a hunting, whatever, uh, you had to get by Coyote Bill on the road. He would place boulders in the road, all sorts of things to stop people from going up there. And that led to his uh, uh, near demise. A um, couple of woodcutters had been going up on the property time and time again, uh, and uh, he had confronted them, and they'd had words. Uh, but it finally came down one time he found them on his land. They had crossed some uh, border that he'd, he'd put uh, cuts or flashing on trees, sorry, marking his property. And they said, or the, he said, you're on the wrong side, you're on my property, and got out his rifle. And um, <laughs> uh, and before you knew it, he'd shot one of the fellas who um, uh, fell by the, the wagon and, uh, in which they were loading wood. And Coyote Bill, strange fellow that he was, he uh, did nothing to assist the uh, wounded fellow. He basically ordered the other uh, woodsman to uh, stand back, stand aside. He uh, mounted his horse, rode into town, and told the sheriff he just, just shot a guy. And uh, so he was locked up by the time the sheriff and his uh, uh, posse, if you want to call it that, arrived at the scene. The poor fellow uh, had died of loss of blood. He didn't have to die, but uh, that's the way Bill left him. Uh, his first trial ended in uh, um, a guilty uh, uh, verdict, uh, and he was sentenced to hang, uh, but uh, somehow he uh, uh, managed to get a second trial, change of venue to the Helena area, and that one resulted in a much lesser charge, and I believe it was about 10 or 12 years in prison. Um, after which he got out, and he went back to the same sort of thing. He um, decided to do some mining out in uh, what is now Sanders County. It was all part of Missoula County at the time. Uh, but, uh, well, I stand corrected in my own brain there. By then, um, well, Sanders County was still part of Missoula, but Flathead and Ravalli had had uh, been separated by uh, that time, 1893 or or so, in any event, he did some mining out uh, um, west, uh, no, east of uh, Plains uh, and Thompson Falls, 
and he claimed a number of uh, gold claims. But uh, there was a woman out in the area who uh, disputed all that and said, no, 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 <laughs> those, are, those are mine or our claims. It came down to a trial in Thompson Falls at which he was to appear and show proof in some way that he owned that uh, land out there and the claims that he claimed. He didn't show up for the trial. His uh, his attorney tried a marvelous uh, a feat of um, uh, soft shoe routine in front of the in front of the court, try, hoping he would come in on the next train, and he didn't show up. About two or three days later, the sheriff went out to try to find him. He was uh, face down in a creek. Uh, with uh, his throat slashed and wrists slashed, as I recall. It was uh, said to be a suicide. That's the way it was ruled, (laughs) but you have to wonder. Yes, you have to wonder. So for our listeners, this is the kind of insight that you'll get from the book. 46 of these stories across 184 pages And what I really liked about it is, beside it being gems of local history, the story you just relayed happened in the 1890s. And your writing style for this, which I want to ask you about, makes it seem like you were there. You know, that you would witness this in real time, that this was happening contemporaneously to to each and every one of these stories. And I found that very appealing, and it just made you want to read story after story to to get your uh, you know in, insights and embellishments so i want i want to ask you a little bit about how did you go about gathering the ancillary information to embellish and enhance these news stories i assume you you found these news stories in the old archives of the newspapers but then you had to get more information than just you could get from the printed word so how'd you go about that Well, the process I've been doing for a little over 10 years, ever since I retired actively from uh, the broadcasting world, radio and TV. Uh, And yes, it all starts with a story. Um, And it takes a lot of work because a lot of these stories are from papers from 1864 on. There are online archives through Chronicling America, the Missoulian, to uh, its credit, the, the um, or its uh, company, has um, put in the money to archive old Missoulians, but only back to 1890. So between 1870 and 1890, uh, none of that is uh, easily available in uh, uh, in an electronic version, uh, you have to do the work finding the old microfilm of the newspaper, copying it digitally, in some cases page by page at a microfilm reader at a library or or the uh, Mansfield at uh, the university or at uh, uh, the Historical Society in Helena. So a lot of work goes into this. So all I was doing initially was reading old newspapers because I retired from a world of journalism and I just wondered what was it like for the the uh, the, the scribblers of the time as they called themselves back in the uh, 1800s what what were their styles what uh, how did they approach a story it varied widely but I just I, I was enamored by the work they did the style of their writing all those things I, and after you spend a year or two reading these papers, uh, anytime I came across something I thought was interesting, I'd clip it and save it digitally. And after a while, I had thousands of these clippings. At that point, it was, well, what do I do with them other than that was fun? Uh, and so I started more research into some of these. Some of these stories require a lot of footwork. In the case of Coyote Bill, I had so much information through newspaper articles on Mr. Bees Cove, right from back then right up to the present. I mean, Bees Cove Creek up the rattlesnake still exists. They named the fire after Bees Cove in the last year or two, a summertime fire up there. Uh, 
but I didn't know what he looked like. I had no idea exactly what was his cabin like, where was it located. So I spent a lot of time uh, on this story and others at the uh, Missoula County Records Center. And um, By the way, there, there are great photographs and great photographic representations in the book uh, right. you know, of what Missoula looked like and what some of these advertisements, for example, when Al Jolson came to town, sure, you know, sure. it, it just adds a lot of, uh, of, you know, meat and pithiness to, you know, to reading this. This is just, not, this is not just newspaper clipping after newspaper clipping. Yeah. This is a, these are interesting stories that paint a very, um, I think, broad picture of what Missoula Montana was like before we were part, before Montana was a state. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I ran across. Finally, I found the trial documents for the murder trial of Kyle mm. Bill at the Missoula County Records Center. And guess what was on top of the pile? An actual newspaper, yellowed with age, marked Exhibit A. <laughs> And that is on the cover of the book, a mm-hmm. portion of it. It's the, <clears throat> excuse me, the Anaconda Standard from, what is it here, June 23rd or 4th, 1905. Um, that was the uh, trial date. Uh, but there was a photo of Coyote Bill with a companion. Now, I'd had this vision of a crusty old guy. You know, think of any old, you know, movie you've seen right. about a hermit. I didn't envision a rather robust, somewhat slim, um, youthful-looking fellow. Uh, if I were to meet that person on the street, I'd... I wouldn't think hermit or, you know, any of these things. So I was surprised just by the photo. Then they they had uh, pictures of his cabin and the rattlesnake, all this in the newspaper. And so suddenly I felt a real connection with this fellow. But to get back to your original question, it's, it's, uh, it's a job like that, going to the record center, digging through old files, trying to find... Uh, other aspects of a person's life. In many cases, I have to go to genealogical websites in order to trace families and find out where, uh, from where they came, their children, etc. So I can kind of have an idea of how the family worked into into the area in Montana. So you're like a journalistic detective in, in the preparation of this book. Just finding snippets that that fit and put the put the puzzle together for each of the stories. Yeah, it's a it's definitely detective work, and and I think I wrote in one of my more recent articles that it's more fun doing the research than writing the story. <laughs> I mean, it really is. It just you're taken down one direction, then you find something new. It takes you in a totally different direction. In fact, I'm working on one right now that may take better part of a year or two, even get a handle on it because it is so complex and involved and yet so interesting on one of uh, the wonderful, well, I don't want to say wonderful, one of the well-known old lawmen of the West uh, here in the Missoula area uh, who is turning out not to be such a wonderful that's a good law. Not a good law. Let's do a quick ID. Our guest is Jim Harmon. His book is "The Sneakinest Man That Ever Was: Headline Stories of Montana's Early Days," and that can be found at Stonydale Press Publishing and their website. Arnie. So, Jim, a lot of the stories are um, fascinating and fit what what many people would think were. Classic stories of the Old West. There's stories about famous people who have come came through Missoula, like Mark Twain and Al Jolson and Ulysses S. Grant in 1883. You have stories about uh, you know murder, mayhem, train robberies, brothels, <laughs> and all of that. But interspersed in all of that, there are other fascinating tidbits that you found to that particularly 
stood out to me. One was the story about the janitor and the Grizz football team. <laughs> Would you share a little bit of that story with our uh, our listeners? I, uh, that one just tickled me. I I couldn't believe it when I, I read it. I, I was going back. My intent wasn't to find that story. I, I was going back just to find out how did the Grizz, uh, Montana Grizzlies, actually begin uh, in the earliest days. And it took me back to a time when they literally didn't have any uniforms or they were hard to find. And and we're practicing in in terrible cold uh, winter like weather outside uh, on the campus. Uh, they were wearing oh, in the, in the case of the janitor that they brought in to be part of uh, you know the practice squad so to speak. He wore his overcoat over his you know uniform. Yeah, he he was just walking by. <laughs> it was not intentional. This poor fellow was just walking by. The the team didn't have enough players for an uh, uh, to form an opponent, uh, so they were recruiting anyone they could who walked by. So the poor janitor walks by, and they con him somehow into you know uh, being on uh, uh, the opposing uh, team for a scrimmage, and uh, uh, within the first play or two. <laughs> he, he's he's involved in a tackle, and uh, he's at the bottom of the pile, and he feels the sharp pain near his groin, and it's like, uh, oh my gosh, I, I don't know what has happened here. And uh, by the time uh, all the players and, and volunteers who had been walking by get off the uh, the dog pile, there, uh, he's bleeding severely <laughs> down the leg. I love and that. Story. It. it, it, it it turns out that he had simply had some sharp knives on him in a leather case from some work he'd been doing earlier. I'm, I can't recall exactly what it was uh, with the university president. And he was just walking by. He had them in his uh, uh, in his clothing, but because of the coldness, he left his jacket on. Totally forgot about these knives. One of them uh, pierced him quite badly. Uh, the members of the team and others uh, had to rush him to a nearby doctor's office where he was uh, patched up. But it... it that's the kind of story I'm interested in. Right. Not necessarily the names and the dates and the places and the first Grizz game. All those things are interesting. I don't deny that. But this one just tickled me. Right. It's like, how could I not write about the janitor who just walked by? Right. And for I our really... listeners, his name was C.C. or Chick White. Th- there you go. Thank you. The janitor uh, at U- <laughs> University of Montana, what, 1897? Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I was going to say what you do beautifully, Jim, in your book is you describe the setting, the place, and the time beautifully. So as a reader, you're really kind of throwing yourself into a Missoula that you obviously don't recognize, but you can picture it. And I also found it very interesting when you talked about that football game and the scrimmage, how they kind of pieced together a practice team and who joined that practice team. Like officials from the – you know, it's just – you just wouldn't see that. And then, and then you followed up with the the first Grizz Cats game story where we lost because somebody talked on the sidelines. <laughs> you know, I called. I, I mentioned in the I mentioned <laughs> in the article in the book. I mean, I called everyone. You know, Bill Schwanke, everyone else, Mecholine. I, I I called them all, saying, you know, I. I'm not making sense of this. What possibly could that mean that they were penalized for talking on a sideline? But uh, apparently, I, I think it was Bill uh, uh, Schwanke who uh, came up with the, the answer that it might have in some way been boisterous or uh, maybe the words used weren't. Might have been insulting to the referee. Insulting to the referee. It might have been something like that. But none of the press reports back then or the UM archives, they're such wonderful archives back to that uh, day that you can look at it at the university, and many of them are online now. But nothing really to explain that, but that penalty cost them the game. The first Grizz Cat game. The other thing that really stood out to me, I as, as a kid growing, you know, growing up at back east, I remember vividly going to Woolworths and to Kresge's, these little 
five and dime mini department stores. But you wrote a whole story about the beehive stores. Yeah. And they were, yeah. That that was fascinating to me. Will you share a little bit about that? Sure. They they were the thing, I guess, the Walmart of the day. Uh, although they were they were corporate in a way, and yet they were locally managed or owned. Uh, but they were everywhere. Uh, I believe they started in the Chicago area, but uh, they could be found, and I think I detailed in, in the story, the many small communities in Montana uh, that had a beehive story. Missoula was particularly interesting only because it was in a building uh, that was well photographed, and there was a high-quality uh, uh, digital-enhanced photo of this beehive story at uh, Maine and Higgins uh, that uh, became part of the book. And I just can't say enough about the wonderful help from the university archives at the Mansfield uh, Library. Wonderful people to work with, and they have a way of getting me the materials now digitally rather than physically going there because of the current pandemic situation. But this building was about to fall down. It was a it was a hazard to health in the community, and the fire marshal wanted it uh, 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 at least stabilized, fixed, or torn down, and uh, what was his name? Schlotsky, I think, was the fellow who ran it at the time, and uh, he, he was not terribly cooperative. He ended up selling the place rather than fix it, but th- these were stores that you, you see the ads on TV that, uh, you know, for one time only, this record-breaking price, you have never seen such an incredible savings... Everything was labeled that way in a beer sure. story. And they had five cent, ten cent, fifteen cent bins. Oh, oh, what, yeah. what really jumped out to me was this is the eighteen eighties, and you had mentioned in in the story there was a, there was one of these beehive stores in Fort Benton. Yeah, and yeah. they were advertising in the eighteen eighties Malaga grapes and pears and oysters <laughs> that oh, you could get. Which was to me astounding back in the eighteen eighties. Oysters were the thing. Any newspaper you picked up back in the 1800s, I swear to God, was <laughs> filled with uh, little want ads. Fresh oysters just arrived at fill-in-the-blank store or saloon, wherever. Uh, largely that as a result of uh, the uh, Northern Pacific Railroad. Right. Well, uh, in the case that, of Fort Benton, yeah. I was going to say, in the case of Fort Benton, it was that it was the last place for the steamships from Kansas City to right. bring goods up to the, you know, at, at the time Northwest Territory. So they maybe they had the the sort of the pick of the litter, if you will, of 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 uh, goods that were arriving into this region, and and because you probably can't find any oysters now in Fort Benton, <laughs> let alone in eighteen eighty. <laughs> I would suspect it's harder now, probably. But uh, that that was one of the things that just uh, uh, really uh, caught my eye. Just about every community in Missoula was crazy about oysters. Everyone, every saloon in town was advertising some oyster dish or or raw oysters or whatever, uh, along with uh, whatever other fare they might have at their wonderful saloon. Jim, you know, what's, what it is interesting is Missoula was also, uh, there was a lot of like uh, funny business going on in Missoula in, these, in this time. Were there any stories you edited and you didn't include because of the subject matter or because of the uh, potential um, uh, controversy? No. Uh, no, I haven't. <laughs> number one. <laughs> no, no, number one. Uh, I, I I go on the legal premise that uh, anything prior to 1922 is uh, um, public domain, and uh, uh, folks living uh, at that time are no longer living, and therefore I can't uh, um, I, I can't uh, uh, slam them. Oh, pardon? They're fair game. 
uh, in essence, yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I wanted to be careful about that, of course, anything uh, later than that. Um, and that's a deep, deep controversy there with um, oh, what the public domain timeline is because of the, the Disney the lawsuit, etc. over their cartoons, etc. But uh, that aside, putting that aside aside, uh, no, there weren't any particular stories that I wouldn't uh, delve into. I, I tried to avoid anything that uh, just seemed... Uh, hurtful or outrageous. Uh, we're not familiar with that sort of thing today, of course. But I tried <laughs> to avoid that from the, the, the past. It's just not in my nature. If it, if it made sense in the context of the story, fine. But I wasn't just going to do a story because of its uh, outrageousness except for that kangaroo i i had to do that one the kangaroo story and also you talked about dun creek nell which ended oh, up yeah. uh you know talking about being the red light district in missoula and how uh sure. you know how wild it was the one thing that was fascinating and you put it in in, in very clear context was as the railroad arrived in in missoula missoula went from 2500 people to 12,500 people Right. In like a year, year, year and a half, two years. Yep. That would be like going now from 800,000 to 400,000 people in two years. Could you imagine that, Scott? I mean, it would be impossible to deal with that kind of growth. And But that's exactly what happened as a result right. of the railroad coming to town. And at the time... Versus imagining it today, what the reaction would be. At the time, it was a blessing. It was hard to find anyone who didn't want the railroad to come to Missoula. That was the link uh, for commerce and transportation. Up until then, imagine the, the stagecoach, uh, the uh, mule teams and uh, wagons of supplies, you know, one of the things that it pointed out to me in reading, particularly that story, how important the railroad barons were. They were kingmakers. They could, if they put a rail spur in Missoula, Missoula became something. If they made a decision for whatever reason, either arbitrarily or politically or because of financial, uh, you know, enticements, to not put the rail spur into Missoula, but do it, uh, you know, into uh, Hamilton, for example, or do it somewhere else. It would have changed the whole nature of the state. They really had boundless power just by deciding where the railroad was going to go and where it was going to stop. Yeah, it certainly did. Um, it was reflected in a couple of ways. Uh, the one story uh, that involved the uh, the Golden Spike uh, reenactment sort of thing, you know. Um, that was supposed to be a private affair for only the, um, um, the president of the Northern Pacific Railroad and his invited guests all the way from Europe and uh, across the country. But something in the number of thousands, I think three or four to five thousand, Area people showed up. It was a big deal to them, and uh, and also to Ulysses Grant, who mm -hmm. was the, the really the only celebrity there to acknowledge the huge crowd. the The railroad was just uh, the, the, the president on down were miffed that all these. Uh, uh, lowly people had shown up to their prestigious event. Yeah. Uh, but that gives you some indication of how important it was. The other one was uh, putting in the Bitterroot line uh, mm -hmm. from Missoula uh, uh, to Hamilton. 
and the very fact that the Stevensville newspaper uh, put out a special issue just on that uh, and worked all night long to accomplish it, their reporter writing down uh, to Hamilton, and then they scurried back uh, to put the paper together so that when it stopped coming back to on the way back to Missoula, they could have this uh, wonderful headline story hot off the press to hand to all those on the on the excursion tour, the first uh, trip on the Bitterroot Line. So, yeah, a big deal. It was a big deal. I remember reading stories, and I'm not, I can't remember exactly what city or town, but people who had anticipated the railroad was coming and the town grew to 40,000 or 50,000 people, and then the railway changed its mind and the town became virtually a ghost town. Oh, the power was incredible. But on the flip side of that was the 1893 um depression, I guess it mm-hmm. would be called today, and that the railroads had overexpanded, uh, really put too much money into it, had to pull back because of economic times, and uh, that, of course, resulted in layoffs and uh, uh, just uh, uh, terrible relations with uh, the, their workers. And that, of course, led to the Coxies Army and sure. unemployed uh, railroad engineers hijacking trains uh, from, from Spokane through uh, uh, Thompson Falls, Heron, all that, and then driving them at, at the breakneck speed toward Missoula, all to get to Washington to demand jobs. Hey, Jim, so for, for our audience, you know so much about this area. Just for our audience who had, didn't know about you, furnish, furnish us with some details. You, had, you were a, uh, a reporter with KPAX for a very long time, or was it KCI? Um, uh, K, uh, KCI. I ended up uh, hiring so many people that ended up at both stations over time. Right. Uh, I hired Jill Valley and, and Aaron uh, uh, Yost and others who are prominent uh, uh, in appearance at KPAX. Um, hired a lot of people. Uh, Steve Fetfight hired me, then he left for a job in Oregon and he came back and I hired him and uh, he uh, uh, rode the anchor desk for KCI uh, for years until retirement just uh, about a year ago. Uh, Mark Haka hired him and uh, he replaced me as the uh, uh, the real meteorologist. The real meteorologist. <laughs> uh, replacing the happy weather guy, which I was. No, no, I had an avid interest in weather, and I studied it just like a journalist would a weather story. So I am proud that all the forecasts were as accurate as they could be, but. Uh, when it came time for that transition from the uh, happy weather guy to the meteorologist, I didn't have the interest in pursuing a degree in that area. But yeah, I spent 20 years in radio and then about 30 in television and and finally retired August 13th, which was a Friday the 13th, I believe, in 2010. So 10 years or so. Uh, a lot of different places from, uh, I grew up in Libby, so as a, uh, as a high schooler at 14 to 18 years of age, I was a disc jockey and announcer and uh, read the local obituaries on the air on good old KLCB radio. Uh, what's your, what is your, your, your assessment of news today? Certainly local news. And uh, how has it changed, if at all? Oh, it's changed dramatically on all levels. I'm disappointed in local journalism only because of ownership. Uh, There was a time that most stations were owned locally. You had a direct line to the owner of the station. If you didn't like something, you could go talk to Mr. Jones. Well, they're by and large corporately owned now, unfortunately, and the dictates come from somewhere back east. Uh, uh, And in many ways, uh, the corporations tend to want to influence down to the local level 
what a newsroom might be uh, producing on a given day that is outrageous and offensive to me. I can't uh, just can't imagine that. Uh, and I'm glad I'm not part of that anymore. But I must say, and, and of course, the whole thing that's happened with newspapers is so sad. I may have been in broadcast journalism my life, but I'm I'm a newspaper reader, and I uh, I had I have great respect for what the newspaper uh, the newspaper industry uh, has done over many many decades, a century or two or three. Uh, just marvelous work, but it's all changed. Newspapers are dying by the hundreds. Uh, staffs are diminished in newspapers to the level of local radio stations that in many cases have one person or a halftime person devoted to actually news gathering. Uh, and that's just, my goodness, that just seems so wrong. I, I of course, am encouraged by the digital age and things like Missoula Current, where a former press uh, a news uh, a journalist decided to make an online newspaper. I am absolutely, uh, what's the English word, uh, gobsmacked by the fact that uh, anyone could do that. One person with a few helpers putting out a daily newspaper with relatively constantly updated stories, just absolutely amazing. Mm. But I, I, I'm not happy with the current state of journalism, unfortunately. There, there are exceptions. And the people, now I must say, the young people involved in the news business today, whether it's print or broadcast, I think they still have the same ethical standards and the same uh, desires to do good work, but I'm not sure the support is there by those who own those entities. You know, well, I remember when I first came to Montana, there were three or four investigative journalists statewide who really dug into stories. Now I don't think there's one left that really has the that has the portfolio to go out there and dig in and and you know, really tell a story anymore. It's all headlines. Yeah. And it's, I think a lot of that's dictated from their corporate. I mean, if we're certainly talking about television from their corporate parents, we at radio, we have a lot more um, flexibility um, with local news. We're not, there's not really much of a dictate um, on what we should or shouldn't report. In fact, they want us to be more local. They want us to be more community. They want us to be, of the community more, much like the current. Um, but there just aren't many of us. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah. And like I say, I, I still believe strongly in those individuals who, uh, I, I shake my head, why are you even choosing this uh, vocation, uh, this profession uh, in life? Uh, you'll, you'll it's probably it. one of the reasons that people of a certain age are so loyal to 60 Minutes, because yes. you get a full, in-depth story every week. And I've been watching it, you know, probably, you know, as long as it's been on the air. And, and I I look forward to hearing the, the texture to a a story and, and their ability to, to reach in and, and give you more detail than you can get anywhere else. And also, to their credit, is the fact that when they make a mistake, they own it. Mm -hmm. And they were right there to tell you, we uh, we made a mistake and here's how it happened. Uh, there's no hiding behind anything. And that's, uh, it's just too bad in today's, well, I have to back up. Everyone talks about the media instead of journalism or news. And, uh, you know, they talk about uh, Fox News, but what they're really talking about is a Fox News personality just talking about things, not the news. Uh, so it, it's messed up. Yeah, well, that line has really gotten blurry between editorial comment and news. You know, and oh, wow. that's why this whole thing about, you know, factual or fake has come in because it's, it's it's the blur between reporting 
the actual occurrence or the situation or the circumstance and then somebody giving their opinion about it and that being used as a as news that's a my wife and I sit watching uh, various news programs in the evening on TV or uh, listening on radio as the case may be and quite often we just shake our heads and say uh, What's the context of this? Or was that an opinion? That uh, uh, I mean, I remember... You shouldn't be doing those things if you're watching the news. I remember historically the the fact that Edward R. Murrow made personal comments about Joe McCarthy Mm. and stepped away from just reporting news was a story in and of itself that someone as respected as that finally couldn't take anymore and said what he thought. Up until that point, you know, newsmen just reported fact or the information or, or you know, the release, and that was it. They didn't offer any kind of comment about it. But I would say in Murrow's case, he'd had enough yeah. of well, what well, was not true, and someone had to step up. And to that extent, I... I applaud him from stepping away. Uh, the only darts I could throw at Murrow were the fact that he was conned into doing so many celebrity interviews uh, live on right. TV uh, that he did not want to do, but uh, he acquiesced in order to continue doing what he loved doing. Do you right. think that? Do you think that the most recent kind of, um, you know, the conspiracy theories and all the work that the current administration has done to t- try to discredit our, the, you know, elections and voting, that uh, the that the press has really fallen down on the job by not keeping them accountable? Like the, you know, I know that CNN has a particular angle. And then Fox has a particular angle, but this whole blurring of the lines has not said, here is, you know, here, what, here's what it means to be accountable to the media. You know, the media's been beaten so much. Well, everything has changed. Uh, this blurring has occurred with um, the diversity of uh, the Internet and social media. Uh I sort of alluded to the fact in uh, a recent article about the fact that I I view everything as contemporary dating back to the 40s and 50s and don't view it as history until it's older than that. But it, I'm reminded at the same time that there are youngsters uh, and young adults who don't know much about the past. They don't have a perspective. They don't know about Edward R. Murrow and uh, Joe McCarthy. They should. It it was a, a very pivotal moment in American history that can teach you a lot about ethics and responsibility and challenging power and saying that's not right based on the facts. Because of the blurriness of today's media world, the news, as just the straight, just the facts, has somehow been lost. Too many of the networks have they have they have talk shows. They they talk about the news all the time. They voice their opinions, and that's blurred next to the following program that might be straight news, but. Uh, how do you discern one from another anymore? Then you add in on top of that uh, highly elected officials saying that's fake. Don't believe it. The uh, the press is the enemy of the people. Uh, I, I again, I love that word. I'm gobsmacked. I just uh, I don't I can't really grasp it and how do we get out of this hole how do we get back to believing trust in uh, journalism again the facts matter but the facts are now called into question on a regular basis and 
suppositions, uh, theories, uh, various thoughts are projected through the media as being the truth without any evidence backing it up. I, I, How can you do was, that? Right. Right. Let's do a quick break. I want to do a quick break. Our guest is Jim Harmon. The name of his book is The Sneakiestest Man That Ever Was, Headline Stories of Montana's Early Days, published by Stonydale Press. Back after this. Are you being audited? Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Back with our guest, Jim Harmon. Jim, where can our listeners get your book? Well, the first uh, location would be Harmon's Histories. HarmonsHistories.com. Uh, the book is there. You can order it directly from me, and I would appreciate that. That having been said, I support local business entirely. It is available at wonderful bookshops in Missoula, Hometana Store, uh, Fact and Fiction, Shakespeare and Company, The Book Exchange, and The Bitterroot at Valley Drug, etc. It's available widely, so... Um, uh, you should have no trouble finding it. Jim, let's let's not make it two years before you come back on again. <laughs> we got a lot we got a lot more to talk about, don't we, Scott? We absolutely do. You've been a great guest, Jim. We appreciate it very much. I I couldn't be more delighted to be here. As you know, I love talking about this this old stuff. We appreciate Well it. worth the read. <laughs> exactly. Artie, I'll see you next week. Yes, Scott. Take care. Thank you for listening to What Do You Know? I can't wait for the next show, Scott. I'm excited too, Arnie. If you'd like to suggest a guest, send me an email at scottrichman at townsquaremedia.com. We'll see you next week. And thanks for listening to News Talk KGVO. ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you call clickgranger.com or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done